Hi, I'm Mark Rutterman, and this is Front Row. Coming up, the debate in Congress over guaranteed monthly income for most Americans. The North Carolina House passes a major energy bill, and is former President Trump still the gold standard in the Republican Party? Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joined in conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation. Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader in the State House. Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11 and Republican State Representative Aaron Perry. Mitch, why don't we begin with the debate in Congress over universal basic income? We learned back in June from Representative Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, often controversial, known as a member of the squad, younger group of uh, uh, women of color in the Democratic Party. She tweeted that she was going to be in this session of Congress putting forward a program for a universal basic income or UBI, which has been talked about in the past. And recently we learned about what that package actually is. It would mean about $1,200 a month for most Americans. It would start off as a pilot program, uh, $2.5 billion to put forward hundreds of test projects in communities across the country. That would take place from 2023 to 27. After that, the thought is to try to expand this throughout the country to uh, affect almost all families making up to $75,000. And it does fit in with some of the recent stimulus ideas that have been put forward from Congress. And supporters say that this would be a way to help bring a lot more families out of poverty. Of course, there are critics who say, one, the cost of doing this beyond the pilot program. The pilot itself is already billions of dollars. There's also the concern about the economics. Does it really make sense for the government to take money from one place and put it in another place and expect there to be economic growth? And also, uh, you have a disincentive for work. We saw with the federal unemployment benefits that a lot of employers are having a hard time getting people to go back to work. How much harder will it be when people are getting an extra 1200 bucks from Uncle Sam? Robert, you have the floor. Well, I think that when you look at a UBI, that's something that's not new. Uh, Andrew Yang popularized it during his presidential run, but really it's something that's been tried throughout the country and really throughout different other countries, first world countries, to try to do some type With of stimulus. mixed results, right? Yes, I mean, completely mixed results. And that's why I'm not sure it's really going to get legs in Congress. Uh, I think it is uh, one of many ideas to try to figure out how do we get working people to have an opportunity to really get a leg up and opportunity in the country, and that's just another idea. Erin, how would it affect small businesses, you think? You're a small businesswoman. I am a small business owner, and I think we saw a little bit of this during COVID when we had the ex expanded federal unemployment benefits hitting households, that there was an incentive to not work. And I think the result of that is it took a little bit longer or companies just couldn't recover as they normally would if they were able to employ the number of people they needed to conduct their business. Jonah. There may be something to the idea of getting childs, you know, and, and childhood poverty, lifting that and supporting at least the childcare industry, which is a really tough business model. So if there was some sort of targeted spending, like you get this income, 
if it will support schools, if it will support and keep open the child care centers, you'll be eligible for this if you're also working parents. I think it's also indicative of, in America, usually when you give an entitlement, it's very tough to take it away. So families are now getting used to these stimulus checks. How do we keep them That's going in creative ways? In 2028 kicks in, undocumented uh, uh, folks who've come across the border would get $600, I think. Is that correct, if they show or have filed a tax ref uh, return? That's one of the concerns is that this program would affect people who are probably illegal immigrants. And so that's another reason why folks who have some concerns about the general idea have an additional concern. To me, one of the interesting parts about this is that the idea of a universal basic income is not necessarily left versus right. Milton Friedman years ago was a supporter of this idea, but his idea was pay the people at the lower end of the income scale and get rid of the massive welfare program that we have and, and just use this universal basic income instead. Can the federal government, we've got about 30 seconds, can, that really, can they really pull this off? Well, no, and that's, again, why I don't think it would necessarily have legs. I think, again, when you look at things that work, like Jonah was talking about, like the child tax care credit, those kind of targeted programs work. I think a program like this, just as a practical matter, can't work at the federal level. Great, Rap, I want to change. What transpired in the General Assembly this week, Aaron? Right, so the North Carolina House of Representatives passed probably the most significant piece of legislation we'll see this session, and that's the Modernized Energy Generation Act, also known as the Energy Bill. So it passed with bipartisan support, 60 to 46, in a rare midnight session. Uh, so I think, you know, federal policy, uh, Policymakers here in North Carolina understand that federal policy is going to be driving the cost of coal up. And as a result, North Carolina is going to have to adjust and plan for the future. So what this bill, this 47-page bill, that I'm going to highlight just a few things from that, uh, and I did read the whole bill, just to, for the record. Um, oh, like Washington politicians. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but what it seeks to do is to retire, early retire, uh, several inefficient coal-fired facilities over the next 10 years and replace it with natural gas. Um, we want to ensure reliability and um, cost is under control, and we do this with the replacement generation in natural gas, nuclear, and adding 777 megawatts a year of renewable energy. So it's a big, it was a five-month-long stakeholder process. Um, the governor has already uh, signaled that he will, he would veto the House bill, um, but we passed it, it's gonna head over to the Senate, um, and it took two votes to do that. Back to back is what the House rules call for. The Democrats opposed to that second vote, and so uh, the House leadership decided to hold that second vote um, as soon as possible, which ended up being 12.01 okay. in the morning the next day. What have you been following, Mitch? Well, on that particular bill, one piece that isn't mentioned, but certainly it caught my attention, is the very last page is a piece that would block Governor Cooper from signing North Carolina up to this uh, thing called REGI. It's the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and it's a bunch of states trying to come together to cut carbon emissions. Basically, the General Assembly would be saying, if they pass this, hold on, this is the type of thing that's policy that the General Assembly should approve. The governor can't just sign you well, up for that. What transpired in the Senate quickly? Well, the Senate had one uh, interesting piece of legislation, and it ended up getting to the governor, and that was making sure that parents, uh, the parents would give parental consent if a vaccine is given to someone under 18 if it, like with the COVID-19 vaccine, is one of these emergency authorization vaccines. Are we beginning to see some of the budget coming out of the House? What are you looking for? 
Uh, well, yeah, we're beginning to see some of the budget coming out, but the whole budget probably won't come out until Sunday night or Monday, and we're planning to vote on it Wednesday. And so, what are your top priorities? Well, I mean, the biggest priority is that a lot of us on my side of the aisle would like to see is just something that's going to help working folks get going during, after this pandemic. Because one of the misconceptions that we have is that we've got a lot of money available, but actually we've got leftover money from not having a budget last session, and then coming into this, we've got the federal money. And what I want to do is make sure that we're looking at responsible spending that we can maintain that will then turn around and reinvest in our people in the state. Do you want to put this in context? Well, for the budget, this might be perhaps the most important function of state government, which is how to spend the millions and billions of tax dollars that's collected. And at first, when it was in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, we all thought we were going to have a budget shortfall. Everyone's staying home, no one's spending money, and it turns out we still had a surplus. So I think for voters, there's really two fundamental ideas, which is if North Carolina has all this extra money, do you give it back to the taxpayer in the form of tax cuts, which is the Republican philosophy, or if you have the money, well, let's spend it and invest it, which is potentially or generally the Democratic philosophy. So you're going to see those two ideas very apparent, and that's heading into the midterms, and heading into the future, voters are going to have a, a clear choice. So I think it's very interesting to watch this because ultimately voters will have a say in this, even though it's very kind of inside baseball. Great rap. I'm coming right back to you. Former President Trump getting a lot of ink lately. Well, let me put it this way. We have a lot of college basketball fans here, and you don't win championships in the preseason tournament or the Maui Invitational. I wouldn't say we're in the preseason now, but look, there are some primaries going on in special elections, and President Trump is trying to put his name into some endorsements. He won one, he lost one, and the key is, well, what he does that mean for the Ohio. future? He won a couple in Ohio, which were significant. He lost one in Texas. And look, there's no question that the Trump brand continues to be a dominant brand, and it's going to be dominant in the Republican Party. Now, can you judge the national electorate based on a couple of special elections in Ohio and then in Texas? What does it do for statewide races? And Trump, yes, it's a big brand, but you know what else was a big, a, a, a big brand? Kodak back in the day. So <laughs> what does that mean for the future? So the Republican Party basically has a opportunity. Are they going to latch on to this brand, which is very popular with a segment, a very loud segment of America? But how sustainable is that brand? And that's what Republicans are going to have to grapple with. And that's where I think in the next several months, and in North Carolina, because we are going to have primaries here, especially for the Senate, are you going to have candidates tethered to Trump? And if they are, how will that do in a general election? And if they're not, what does that mean for the future of the party? Who can fill in the hole? Is President Trump a double-edged sword for the Republican Party? He certainly is. Uh, no candidate who's going to run as a Republican can be at this point against Donald Trump. They have to be for him, but just how for him? I mean, just, just how much are they for him? Because once you get past the primary, you are going to have to worry about independent voters, moderate Democrats, suburban women, people whom the, the former president often turns off. So they basically have to walk a fine line. To me, it's also going to be interesting to see how does Donald Trump approach the time between now and the next election. Is he all going, going to be all about sour grapes? I lost in 20, or I actually won in 2020 and they stole it from me. Or is he going to come forward with a vision for the future like he did when he won in 2016? Well, they may need generational change, but Trump, Aaron, does have $82 million in his pack. He does, but I have to tell you that I think, you know, as we saw in 2020, 
2020 and some of the polling that he has some work to do with women. And I think, uh, you know, women broke for Biden, uh, 56 percent. Um, but when you look at white college, college, um, er, you know, achieving right. females, uh, they broke for Biden 61 percent. So you can extrapolate from that maybe some challenges in the suburban areas with uh, women voters. So we'll see, we'll see what he does, but I think he might have some work to do there. Robert, what do you think would be the top tier issues in uh, 2022 going into midterms? Well, I think in 2022, it's really going to still be the same as it was in 2020, and it's going to be a referendum on the Trump brand. And are we going to be looking at a situation where we continue to follow in those footsteps, or is it going to be a situation You don't think immigration, the economy are going to be top tier issues? I, I just don't see... Public safety? Defund the police? Yeah, well, I mean, anything can get made into a political issue. Yeah, but even... <laughs> but what voters Biden's care about. Holster thinks that. Yeah, and I can see where that would be, but I'd really be interested, considering what we're going through with the pandemic, at where we're going to be in 2022 and what we're really going to be looking at. Well, how would you say Biden's handled the pandemic so far? Did he declare victory too early, you think? I wouldn't say they declare victory too early. I think he's done everything he could. I think now what unfortunately has happened with the pandemic is it's become so political in all of our responses. And I think what that's caused is what we're seeing now. We're seeing states that have upticks in the COVID variant that are looking at their worst times since this pandemic started, which is really sad considering when we got a vaccine out there. Jonah, wrap this up in about 40 seconds. All those issues you mentioned, immigration and police and security, those are substantive issues. But if you bring Trump, then that is a distraction to those issues. So for Republicans, they're going to have to determine, are we going to run on message or are we going to run on personality? Or are we going to make the generational change? Okay, Robert, I want to come right back to you and talk about the CDC. They stopped the evictions this week. There's a moratorium. Yes. And what President Biden did through the CDC is to make sure that the moratorium could extend for further than the deadline that was coming up on October 3rd. The reason that you're looking at that, and I think the reason that it's important, is because right now you've got billions of dollars at the federal level that have not been distributed. Forty-six billion. Yes, for renters and for landlords, and it's an important issue for both. Uh, we're in a booming market right now for sellers and buyers, but when it comes down to the rental market in North Carolina, for instance, 15 percent of renters are behind on their rent. And so the question is, do we want to be in a situation where all these evictions just come pouring in, or do we want to be in a situation where we can keep landlords with their properties rented and keep them getting income and keep renters in their homes? And so extending this moratorium is going to help us out a whole lot with that. Mitch, there's some question whether this is constitutional, correct? A lot of question, because the Supreme Court actually just dealt with this issue very recently, and the swing vote uh, breaking a 4-4 tie was Brett Kavanaugh, who basically said, you know, this really isn't constitutional, but the moratorium's supposed to go away in a few weeks, and this will give Congress time to come up with a plan that would actually be constitutional. Well, the Biden administration, uh, shortly afterwards, when, when this... Uh, the moratorium was he coming up. He acknowledged up front that it wasn't yeah, constitutional. The, 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 the when the moratorium was coming up, the Biden administration came forward and said, well, it doesn't look like it's constitutional. One of his spokesmen said he's kicked all the tires and it looks unconstitutional. And then they turned around and did it anyway. And his spokeswoman, Jen Psaki, tried to come out and say this was a brand new moratorium, so it's not affected by the previous Supreme Court ruling. No one really buys that. And this looks like a slap in the face of the Supreme Court, which was ready to rule five that the whole thing was unconstitutional. Is this an assault on private property rights, you think? 
Well, it, it certainly affects private property rights. I mean, the, the landlords and the owners of the property are the owners. There's supposed to be a contractual obligation to pay the rent for the federal government, especially the CDC, which doesn't have anything to do with housing, for them to come forward and say you can't evict someone. It just shows federal government overreach at a whole new level. Jonah. Well, the CDC's reasoning is that the data has shown that if people don't have a place to live, then there's potential for them to be spreading the virus because if they have a place to live, then they can quarantine, they can isolate. I'm just explaining what they're saying. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. We're listening. Hashtag the science. So, <laughs> look, there's, I think there's, there are some deeper rooted issues here, which is where are people going to live because the cost of living is getting so high that people can't afford to stay where they are. And that's because there's such a low supply of housing. And we certainly have this problem here in North Carolina, whether you're in Raleigh, whether you're in Charlotte, even whether you're in Chatham County, where they can't build houses fast enough for people to get here. So what ends up happening, it's a supply and demand issue. Supply goes down, cost goes up. And therefore, you just don't have enough places to put people. So you either have a homeless problem, look at Seattle, look at San Francisco, look at New York City, and start to look at all the panhandlers as you get off of 40 or get off of some of the other highways like 77, or you start to have this eviction crisis where, okay, we can stay in there, but they have to pay and there's nowhere to go. So this, maybe not even a federal government issue, it goes down to the state and well, maybe local government. Well, that's a good government. question. Is the federal government the best delivery system, Aaron? And by the way, a lot of these landlords, they depend on this income. That's right. And I think, and to, to your point, you know, I think the CDC's order, many could make the argument that it would exacerbate housing shortages by taking away funding from developers. And besides the constitutionality standpoint of this, I do think Robert had a good point earlier today that, you know, from a consistency and reliability standpoint for landlords, uh, you know, they want to see people in there, they're going to be paying their rent and, and some consistency there for them to, to plan on in the future. So... Uh, you know, it's a tough issue. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. This is one that's going to, th I think, make a lot of people sad. A majority of Americans believe that the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is still ahead of us. And that is a change. This was a, a recent poll, Harris poll, 54% in this most recent poll believe that the worst of the pandemic is still ahead of us compared to 46% who think it's behind us. That's a sharp contrast from the beginning of July when 70% still thought that the worst was behind us and we were moving forward. Uh, rising concerns about the Delta variant are, are a main, major reason for this. 76% of the people in this poll say they are very or somewhat concerned about that variant. Do you think all these mandates have something to do with it too? Oh, I think the mandates do. I think media coverage does. I think hey. uh, I think I think a <laughs> I think a lot of what we're hearing about the COVID-19 pandemic now compared to what we were a few months ago is having people say, "I don't know where this is going. I thought we were going to be out of this by now and they're still concerned that we're not." Robert, a record number of earthquakes at the Yosemite volcano. And the reason that's, that's good news all around it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Next pandemic. <laughs> exactly. And that is exactly what's got people concerned is the fact that the Yosemite volcano has been responsible for three major eruptions that, uh, you know, and if you know anything about volcanoes and especially a super volcano, those could be serious. Now, the good news is our experts tell us that even though they had this record number of earthquakes, that does not signify that Yosemite is getting ready to blow. So we're good for right now. Okay, Jonah. 
Well, not to be the bearer of more bad news, but <laughs> look, there's, there's a lot of talk of geopolitics when it comes to Russia and China, but if you look at the Persian Gulf right now, there is some significant tensions rising with Iran and a shadow war between Iran and the West. There are some private ships that have ties to British companies, Israeli companies, that have actually been attacked, and some have been hijacked. And there was one attack by a drone that was actually condemned by the European Union and Great Britain and the United States, all basically confirming by intelligence agencies this was linked to Iran. And then over the last couple of days, you have Iran's proxy, Hezbollah, actually launching rockets now into Israel. We've heard of Gaza and those rockets, another Hamas, another Iran proxy, Hamas, but now it's Hezbollah. And Iran, they've now just, there's a new president there, not Rouhani, which was supposedly supposed to be the moderate. Now there's uh, a, a much more conservative president in Iran. Just What's as been the Biden response? Well, right now it's been kind of muted. I think they've been discussing uh, potentially getting back into a, a new Iran deal to try and curb their nuclear weapons program. But even Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying probably not going to happen. And by the way, they're going to put a council, uh, I think, in Palestine, correct? Well, States? potentially in a consulate for the Palestinian territories, right. potentially in Jerusalem. But that's, you know, so far, the Biden administration, to its credit, has kind of kind of held back on that, trying to negotiate with the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who will be making a visit to uh, the U.S. in the next couple of weeks. Aaron, underreported, please. Well, I'm going to bring some positivity to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> there are 33 athletes in North Carolina that are representing us at, on Team USA in Tokyo. And so far, I've counted six medals, but I think we can all be very proud of our athletes in North Carolina, two of whom are from uh, Southern Wake County, I have to say. Andrew Copabianco uh, won the silver medal in a three-meter springboard synchronized dive. And then Daniel Durs, who's a business owner, um, and also um, a, an athlete, of course, won the silver medal in BMX for his, but for his home native land of Venezuela. Okay, let's go lightning round, Mitch. Who's up and who's down this week? Well, my up, you would think, might be good, but uh, it's bad news. Murders in Washington, <laughs> D.C. There were 21 in... Nothing to laugh about. There were 21 in July alone, and that was nearly three times as many as deaths from the coronavirus. The city hit 100 homicides for the year on July 10th. That's the earliest since 2003. My down... Opponents of gambling in North Carolina, the Senate's Finance Committee passed Senate Bill 688, which would legalize sports wagering in North Carolina. Only two people spoke against it from the Family Policy Council and the Christian Action League. I think the supporters knew that they were so confident about this bill they didn't have to talk about it. Robert. I'm going to try to bring some positivity instead of Mitch coming twice with bad things, but <laughs> remote work. Uh, Americans have been polled and it turns out that a lot of people would be willing to take a pay cut in order to keep working from home. Uh, down Amazon, they're back at it again with unions because uh, at this point the NLRB has said that they tainted the last process so they're going to have to go back through the process about unionizing in Alabama. Don't look for a contribution. Go ahead. <laughs> Just to say, I think we laugh. Because <laughs> we laugh because that's, I mean, there's no other way really to react. It's, it's like therapy for us. But uh, the, the up this, this week um, is the governor's uh, million-dollar giveaway for the vaccine. You like to see that it's going to be helping good people. And Audrey Chavis, who is 18 years old, um, she was the last winner. And, you know, she works two jobs. She's going to be an incoming freshman at Fayetteville State University. And this is just a nice story. She talked about how, look, she thought about 
about it for a long time, but she realized how tough it was to be in high school wearing okay. masks, wanted to get out of it, and just an inspiring story about helping the community. Uh, who's down? Happy birthday, President Obama, but your party, <laughs> not a good look when you're about to host four or 500 people in Martha's Super Vineyard. Super spreader event. Potentially, you know, look, whether or not you believe hashtag the science, it's just not a good look when you have your colleague and your former vice president who's now president trying to urge people, be careful, we're still in this, and then you go ahead and have a big party. Erin, who's up who's down this week? Up this week, school choice advocates. A recent poll conducted by Real, Real, Real Clear Opinion Research showed a strong majority of support for school choice at 74%, and it was across party lines. 70% um, of independents, 70% of Democrats, and 83% of Republicans all are finding that they think school choice is a good idea. Um, um, some of that could be because of the COVID shutdowns and people started looking for other options in schooling or the critical race theory in schools. Uh, who's down? New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. I mean, this is a horrible week for him. I think we can all agree Was about that. Now? Yeah, <laughs> right. A nearly five-month investigation conducted by two outside lawyers found that Cuomo's administration was, quote, hostile work environment and was rife with fear and intimidation. Of course, all the sexual assault allegations, people from his own party are calling for him to resign. Including yeah, he's got a short shelf life, I think. Mitch, headline yeah. next week. Yeah, if Governor Cooper's getting involved, you know that, the, that it's over for him. <laughs> My headline, with the House vote to approve the budget plan, negotiators sprint toward a final deal. Headline next week. House budget passes at the same time that the House begins negotiations regarding redistricting. Are they consulting with you on the Republican side much? It, on the budget? On where we can have our offices, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Headline next week. Sounds like a good, good tip. Thank you. <laughs> Headline next week, teachers already nervous about the start of school now start raising alarms, and you'll hear more debate at school, school boards. Headline next week. Formerly a small town, Holly Springs, North Carolina, is on track to be a global hub for the biotechnology industry. A lot of businesses are coming here. Name a few quickly. Ooh. Amgen and Fujifilm. Diosynth is coming to Holly Springs. And okay, great line. job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities and by Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.